This is Blue Collar Culture, where you don't need ping pong tables, a cereal bar, or nap pots to attract and retain real A players. Join us where we speak with down-to-earth leaders that understand what it takes to win with a blue collar culture. Now here are your hosts, Jeremy McLiver and Ryan England. Welcome back to another episode. I am your co-host, Ryan England, and I am here today with Jeremy McLiver. Welcome back, everyone. So it's not every day that we get to have a guest like today's guest. He has been in the financial space for a long time, but before that, he was actually in the home improvement industry. So he really gets what it takes to grow a business that has people out in the field and is dealing with a lot of the challenges that you're dealing with today. But after he moved into financials, he grew a great size business, sold it to a private equity fund. And now that's what he does is he talks and educates entrepreneurs on how do you leverage the finances that are out there so that you can take your business to the next level, stand out and really make a difference. And so I want to welcome today's guest, Jesse G to the show. Thanks for being here, Jesse. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we were talking a little bit before the show about just your passion and drive for entrepreneurs and helping them think differently about their business. And one of the questions I love to ask is, what is the biggest myth as it relates to your industry that you see when it comes to entrepreneurs? Sure. Well, as I think about being an entrepreneur, which now I've really been one since I was 18 years old, what I've come to know and understand over that period of time is that you don't need to come up with like a brilliant idea. It's actually, at least in my own experience, it's not the great idea that matters most. In the businesses that I've been involved with, they weren't new industries or new markets. They were ones that have been around for a long time. But I think what we were able to do in, in most cases is do uh, just a little bit better of a job on executing in and around the business itself, the fulfillment of those businesses, but also around innovating and being creative about how we went to market, you know, sales, marketing, and really thinking about that. And so I would say, again, that the biggest myth is that you've just got to have this great idea, which in my experience is, is not the case. Well, there's a couple of things that you said right there out the gate that piqued my interest. First is that you've been an entrepreneur since 18. And I love that. Because a lot of the entrepreneurs that I work with, their story starts then. And some of them you dig back and you might be the same. You start recognizing your entrepreneurial eye and drive early, early on in your childhood. Now, the one thing that I see that I'm looking forward to today that you've overcome is sometimes we get overconfident in that. Because we sold lollipops at 12 years old. We had a route. We did this. We've overcome a lot of things right? To be an entrepreneur. And at 18, you're an entrepreneur. 19, I made my first hire. So doing the same route. I know for me, for a long time, I felt like I had the answers and it was self-sufficient. But you also shared that there's a spot where you got really clear about how you're executing just a little bit better. So I'd like to dig into that. What was that thing that started giving you that competitive little bit better advantage? Sure. Good question. As I think back, one of the many things I'm very grateful for is I had some really good mentors as a young man. And I kind of had an attitude that I had the capacity to learn. And I wasn't coming from college degree 
or any of that. So it was kind of that old saying, necessity is the mother of all invention. I realized like for me to transition from trading my time for money or being an employee in that way to being an entrepreneur, a lot of what I needed to know was what people around me were doing and doing well. And so I think that was kind of the beginning of it. And then I got to say, I think we're all very fortunate to live in a world where information is free. And so I think as I kind of matured and got further into business and had done more things, and as the internet came along, that became really a powerful tool because I could get pretty smart on just about anything as long as I was willing to go and do a little bit of work to get it. So I would point to those couple of things as being big drivers. Excellent. And I know some of your financial background and some of the amazing feats that you've done in business by the numbers. Could you just share a couple of those clippets with us before I tee up the next question, which will be, how did you leverage so much growth? Like, How did you take from doing it yourself to being able to grow exponentially like that? But before you do that, I would like to hear some of those stats that you shared with us. Sure. So my first foray into being an entrepreneur and a business owner, well, was really, when I talk about being 18, I was out doing kitchen table sales and home improvements. If you don't go make any sales, you don't make no money. And so that was kind of my first foray into that. But then in terms of being a business owner, we got into the mortgage industry in 1999. And of course, mortgages have been around for a long time. It's highly competitive. It's somewhat commoditized, largely price-driven. But we saw an opportunity where we could kind of leverage our back-end infrastructure. So we're really good at processing these loans. And in that business, you're really manufacturing a file, so to speak, that you can get approved and funded and closed. And so we went from, gosh, we, you know, we started out with one employee, but we went from, say, half a dozen employees to 1,000 across 42 licensed offices over the course of five years. And that was all organic. One of our assets was the fulfillment and the back-end process. And so then we just really focused on hiring. We made hiring and training like one of the most important things that we were doing. So we were always hiring. We built systems and processes around that so that we could hire you know, 10 people a day, for example. And in many cases, we did. And that one thing, we did a lot of things right. Not everything, but we did a lot of things right. But really focusing on that and understanding that it was business about people and processes really helped us to scale it up. And then by quite a bit of stroke of luck in 2005, before the Great Recession that was to follow, we were able to exit the business. And so that was my first experience in building and then have a successful exit. Excellent. So some successful exits. I know you shared that 42 offices, a thousand licensees, really a lot of accelerated growth. With that, just kind of tagging onto your very first comments that you made, you began looking at the business and trading time for money and those kinds of things. Help us now to understand as that growth began to happen, you're focusing on hiring the people. There's obviously some cash basis behind us that started really helping you to accelerate. Can you explain kind of the money side of it for us? Sure. In that business, the barriers to entry were pretty low and I think still continue to be fairly low. We really self-funded ourselves. I mean, we started the business with not a lot. We were the last people, when I say we, I'm referring to my wife and I, but 
we're the last people to get paid. So we really reinvested, but we also had an eye on working capital and thinking about how a business kind of creates new customers and how the money comes in and goes out. And then, of course, at the end of the day, you hope there's some left or you build a model so there's some left. And so one of the things that really helped us to be self-funding, and we've applied this to other businesses we've been involved with, is really thinking about that working capital and trying to manage that in such a way, and whether that's pushing payables out some, accelerating receivables in, figuring out, hey, can we get paid a little bit earlier to help support our growth? And so for us, you know, we were fortunate as much as we were able to engineer that in such a way that it was largely self-financed. So really, it got down to managing your finances strategically, not as the customer and the market was dictating, but really getting more methodical with the way you're doing that. I think that's right. I think for a lot of businesses, I mean, you get so consumed with the business of business because there's always emergencies and things always seem urgent. And just being thoughtful about it and kind of thinking about it and make an impact on the overall liquidity of the business. And to your earlier point, if you're growing by leaps and bounds, a lot of times you start running into issues where you run out of capital because your pipeline is getting bigger and the capital to support the resources to execute on that becomes thinner. So I think even more so if if you're in a situation where you're really growing, you've got to be heads up on that and how that's going to flow through your model. Yeah. So I know that you invest in businesses through your funds and you've built several yourself. So this isn't theory to you. Built the mortgage one we've talked about. You got the energy company that you built and successfully exited. So when you began looking at it from the numbers and looking at it from investments, what are the one or two biggest pitfalls you see businesses getting into or traps that we would say? So you're like, ah, oh, that's not going to make a good investment, not from your perspective, but even from their perspective. I was just to say that I could kind of speak to what I look for in when we look to invest. And essentially what we do is we look for entrepreneurial businesses where we think that we can add value, whether that's capital or is usually a capital component to that, and then add some just strategic value from bringing our experiences to bear. And the thing that I look for is a couple of things. I mean, number one, the most important thing to me is the operator. There's just no substitute for having a good operator, good CEO, whatever title you want to give them. But the person that the buck stops with, we think about, we partner with people. And they don't have to have all the answers. Obviously, they don't, nor do I. But they got to be somebody that shows up every day that you can trust and kind of checks those boxes. The other thing that I have found works for us is we look for businesses that I'll call boring just businesses that are easy to understand. And that's why a lot of trades, for example, they're not overly complicated businesses. And so we look for opportunities where you may have a competitive industry, take plumbing, for example, or roofing or one of these type of businesses, where we think we can either execute better, where we can innovate around how we go to market and just bring a little bit more sophistication, if you will, and a little bit more thought into how the business is run and how to grow it. And we found that largely to work. It's pretty simple. It's not a silver bullet, but that's what's worked for us. Good. So with that in mind, the leadership, their dependability, and how simple a business is to understand. I love the word that you use the word boring. So do I. I love 
boring companies because you're right. They can actually beat the market. People can understand it. And from what I'm hearing, you're looking for that 1% better, that 5% better. It's not that they have to be completely transformational, that we can create a market edge. And that's where you've won every single one of these times. I think that's right. I was going to give an example. We entered the roofing business in February of this year, 2021. So we've been open for eight months now, nine months going on. And we started at zero. It was pure startup, had a great and continue to have a really great operator. But there's lots of roofing out there, lots of roofing businesses. It's very competitive. But what was interesting about the strategy was, is we really focused in on a particular kind of marketing and sales approach and building a channel in around that. And more specifically, we focused on catering to solar companies because what we realized was solar companies, about 10 up to 20% of all their customers need a new roof. And so what we found was that you'd have the CEO of ABC Solar just pulling their hair out because they got 20 different subcontractors across 10 different markets and it was hard to keep track of. And by the way, if the roof fails, I mean, you got a real problem with your solar system. I mean, it's a super important part of the project if it's needed. And so we focused in on really being a great partner to solar companies. And that is our one thing, our mission. We think of them as one of our customers, in addition to the customer that's putting a roof on their house. And I will tell you, we went from February zero to we broke a million dollars in sales within the first six months. And we expect by the end of this year to break $2 million in sales with a healthy margin. So again, I think just as an example, had a great operator, but really took a business that was boring, but easy to understand and found a different way to go to market, a different way to develop a channel. And that has really made all of the difference. Got it. And I love that, how niched you got to the solar, right? That actually leaves room for another roofing company to still dominate and win in the market, but niche somewhere else. And you're perfectly okay with that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, whoever delivers the most value wins, and that's the way that it should be. But there's such a broad market, for example, in that industry that there's plenty of room for competition. It's just how you kind of innovate just a little bit. It doesn't have to be, as you said, totally transformational. Sometimes you can just increments of change, increments of how you think about going to market, serving the customer that can really make a huge difference in your business. Excellent. So I want to dive just a little bit deeper into what you do, because we've been really focusing on the entrepreneur side of it. You go in and you get to see a lot of different businesses and how they operate. Do they have a special, unique competitive advantage in the marketplace. You're looking at this and you're looking at it from a financial, let's do this or let's not do this. Why would the entrepreneur consider a financial partner like you? Good question. So I came from a world prior to ever having a financial partner where I just thought, why would I do that, right? Well, I don't need any partners and maybe I didn't need the money. So what, what was the point? After, though, I went through not a full exit, but brought on a private equity partner in one of our businesses, they brought a lot of value. They brought value in relationships. Obviously, there's the capital component to that, but they really made us as a management team step up and kind of professionalized us. And we 
where before, if you're the owner and the CEO and the founder and the chairman of the board, I mean, you don't really have anyone to report to. And maybe that's <laughs> the way you want it, which I get. But I can tell you, bringing in a financial partner, it gave us access to the capital, but it also brought us a different level of sophistication, which, as I look back on it, really helped us drive more business and was the catalyst for value improvement. You know, I've seen that, actually. I was not expecting that answer from you. I thought of several different clients that I've seen humming along, doing good. We're working with them. They're becoming more professional, more clear. And as they realize their strategy of growth and there may be some cash flow, not limitations because they could just adjust their growth because they have control over their numbers, but they see more opportunity out there than they can take advantage of. I've seen several of them take the leap into a financial partner, private equity, independent sponsor, any of those kinds of scenarios. But it's interesting what you highlighted is the big value that they get. Because that's been the, probably the biggest one I've seen too, is that they become just 10 times better operators because they have this accountability and this clarity and they begin to become more independent from their business, which was their dream in the very beginning, right? Because they begin to run that business versus be in the business. And yes, while I want to be uh, CEO and board member, solo extraordinaire and all of those other fun things, I also wanted independence. And sometimes when I'm all of that and I'm not getting the independence. So I've definitely seen that one. And then I love the contacts, the being able to leverage not only the money, but the relationships to grow and take something to the next level. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think as you, as a business, and this is a common term in the private equity world is they want to invest in a platform. And really the layman's terms being just a business where you've got a solid foundation of people and processes, and then you can bolt on other businesses and or grow organically. And that's a third thing that I didn't mention that I would mention is having access to that capital and then helping kind of build that sophisticated business platform that really takes you from acquiring one customer at a time to potentially through acquisitions and other channels, maybe you start to grow somewhat exponentially. So I would say that's another big value driver. Absolutely. So help us through this. An entrepreneur is listening, has been considering it. They see a bigger vision than they're able to achieve right now. They're excited to bring in some professional support, help, thinking, and professional money into the game. What's some of the criteria that they should be considering? Because I know there's a lot of different financial partners out there. What should they be considering that would be important on their side? Sure. Good question. Well, I would answer that question by first making a comment, which is you generally have in the world of private equity investors, you have financial investors and then you have strategic investors. And so I think the first question that you want to ask yourself is like, what's the right partner for me? If I'm in plumbing business, is the right partner a national distributor, maybe a national plumbing parts distributor that could be strategic and really help me to grow my business through their network? And then on the financial side, that largely comes down to you have an investor that they're trying to achieve some type of ROI that was their hurdle and your business checks those boxes. So I think you start there. The other question you need to ask yourself is, am I going to be staying in the business or am I just cashing a check and I'm out? If it's the latter, then you may be looking for a financial investor, but you could also be looking for strategic. But if your goal is really to grow, I think 
trying to find a strategic investor that can really help support you and bring to bear some of the things, some of their resources is probably a good way to go. And then the third thing I would say is when you start to go down that path in earnest, and I learned this not really the hard way, but I didn't really appreciate it. I think having a good investment banker in your corner is hugely valuable, not only because you're busy running your business and these things take a lot of time and energy, but I also think they help you to really maximize your value and open up the most you know, broadest universe of potential investors. So you would recommend if they are getting there to go talk to an investment banker? Is that what I'm hearing? I would. Yeah, I would. I think it's well worth the dollars that you're going to pay them. Excellent. So they go get an investment banker. This is going to help them get clearer on their goals. And I agree with you. If this is a retirement exit, it's financial. But really today, the show's digging into, I want to grow. I have a bigger dream. I have a bigger vision. And I'm looking for somebody to help me along on that. You shared in your story that you did bring that in and some of the values you got. So with that, they need to get clear on where they're going, what they want. Is it a financial exit? Is it a strategic growth? Once they have that strategic growth, are there any questions they should be asking? Or do you feel like that investment banker is going to be able to really bring them the clarity they need? Having the right investment banker, they'll be able to help you curate a lot of the questions. But I think as a business owner, you put your heart and soul into these businesses and you build teams of people there's just a lot of care that goes into it. So I would not be shy. I would ask the tough questions like, what's life look like when you're my partner? What do you expect? And is this going to be something where you're calling me every morning at 6 a.m. to get an update? Or is this, are we going to meet once a quarter for a board meeting? I think you should be really clear about the questions of how do you really add value to my business? Yes, the money is nice if you're taking some money out of the business, but Beyond that, how do you help me grow? How do you help me find new customers? How do you help me identify, say, acquisition opportunities? And really do that early on. And I think especially entrepreneurs, they have a pretty good sense for people. And I think when you get in the room and you spend a couple hours with potential investors and you ask the questions, you'll start to get a feel, is this going to be a good partnership? And to your point, it's critical that you get it right because getting it wrong is painful. Yep. And I love that you said dig in, like just get real, real. <laughs> like don't be afraid of any question, any conversation or any concern that you have while you're going through this, because when you get to the other side, if you haven't covered those, they're going to come up. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And as we're talking, a couple of things that come to mind is ask the question, how many other Back to our example of the plumbing company, how many other plumbing companies have you acquired? Can I talk to their CEOs? Have you been involved with any lawsuits with your partners? I mean, you know, really getting down to those kind of nitty gritty questions, I think is really helpful in finding the right partner. So a couple of questions. If I'm the entrepreneur, I'm kind of considering, I'm, I don't know if now's the time, when's the time, when should I start talking to someone about investing or just exploring this? Where am I at my business when it's right time? That's a good question. I would say that if you're thinking about bringing on a partner, you should start prepping for that probably a year, if not even a little more, before you actually intend to do a transaction. That's going to help you to really get your ducks in order, so to speak. 
whether it's a strategic partner or a financial partner, they're all going to want to see largely the same stuff, right? They're going to want to see you got good financial records, most likely going to be focused around EBITDA and, and multiples of that in terms of valuation. So I think the first thing I would say is start really early. In terms of talking to an investment banker, I think you start with that discussion really early too, and they can help you to kind of build to a point where you're really ready. In, in terms of some of the other metrics, it's really tough to say. I mean, there's a universe of investors out there, and some of them say, look, if it's not a $100 million transaction, we won't even consider it. And then you go down to more middle market type of transactions. And then you have, like myself, like I look to invest anywhere from a few hundred thousand dollars, maybe up to a few million dollars and really see, can we really make an impact and add a lot of value? And so I don't know there's necessarily a particular scale that you need to be at because of you have those options, but I would say more so really just making sure that you've got good records and that you've really built a business that looks like, I used the word earlier, platform, business that you could add another 100 customers a month or another 1,000 customers a month to, and you've got the right processes to support that. And then probably the last comment I would make about that is if you're of the scale where you could have a CFO or just a really strong controller, really somebody that has a good handle on your books and the finances, I think that's a huge add to that whole process. So if you don't have that, again, start kind of thinking about what are the pieces of the puzzle I need to put in place if I don't have them maybe a year, year and a half before you actually intend to get a transaction done. Because Once you get into an offer, it could be as soon as 90 days, which in my experience, it's never 90 days. It's usually like six, seven months before you actually get a transaction done. Okay. So let me ask you this. We realize it, don't have a CFO. We're at that size where it's not quite making sense. We got good books. We're keeping clean stuff. What's your view of an outside CFO? I think that's great. I, in fact, have a few people in my network that do that and help support businesses. And then at some point or if and when they're ready to have a full-time CFO, they can. But if you have a really good bookkeeper that has good records, I think that's a great idea. You can have somebody that can think a little bit more strategically, look at the business a little bit differently, be a good sounding board for you. And you don't have to take on the heavy burden that comes along with that role. Excellent. Yeah, I know I was growing some collision centers and we're doubling literally every single year, high growth kind of thing. And when I brought in outsourced CFO, somebody that was way more educated and way more skilled than I could afford, but I really didn't need 40 to 60 hours of that a week. I needed a smaller portion of it. I got immense value, looked at my business completely different, began understanding why I would even consider these valuations and EBITDAs and those kinds of things and started realizing, hey, this is an entity that's building wealth. It does a service, yes, and it needs to also be growing by the numbers and the value of this organization. And as I say, I know no one can see my hands, but my hands kind of look at this, make an entity outside of me, right? When I started my business, it was all around me. I was in it. That CFO, that outsourced CFO was the breaking point for me, where it became something else, its own living mechanism. So, Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah. 
Well, we've looked at partnering. We've thought about this. We're having this. And you said a long time out. We're talking a year, year and a half out. Don't go too fast is what you're saying. Get really clear on what you want. But then we make this leap. We have this conversation. We get the right investment banker. We make the deal. Tell us what to expect on the other side of that. Deal is done. What should we be expecting or thinking about that could be different in our life post financial partner? Maybe we haven't discussed yet. Well, I think that A, you're going to have probably a lot more in the way of financial reporting that you may have now as the sole owner. So that's an expectation that I think you should have. But then I think depending on who your partner is, it could be very high touch and maybe that's good or maybe that's what you want and or need. And so it might be kind of weekly. We've had relationships where it was largely driven by the CEO where it's like, I want to have a weekly kind of update call we're focusing on the key metrics of the business. And so we've kind of gone as much as every week having what we call a flash call to just quarterly board meetings and kind of everything in between. So I think that's some of the stuff that you kind of flush out early on. But certainly, I think what you can expect is a higher quality reporting, a little bit more strategic thought. And one of the things I didn't mention earlier with your question of what are some of the things you should be looking for that I want to bring up is I think a really important question is like, what's the exit strategy? Like everybody knows how to get into these partnerships. You sign a bunch of paperwork and there's some exchange of value, but then like, where does this go? Are we building something that we're going to try to sell for more in a few years or is this a longer term kind of hold? I just wanted to add that. I think it's a super important question. Excellent. You said it and I thought of it when you were talking at one point and didn't bring it up because when you're even asking about questioning, hey, the other plumbers that they may have bought, ask them how long have they held their businesses? What is their success rate on them? What's their growth rate? Because they're going to have a track record on that. Just make sure it aligns to your core. Well, Jesse, we have been having a time on this. I've been enjoying the conversation. As we bring this to a wrap, what's one or two things that you would say to somebody that's listened to this they don't know if they're interested. They don't know if they are, aren't. Like they kind of have that. What's one or two things that they should maybe do now to help them get that ball going, yes or no direction? What's one? What would that be? Sure. With respect to uh, bringing on a partner, part of your question earlier was when's the right time? And I was a little bit broad in my answer. I said, well, you know, the scale of your business, I mean, I think there's certain limitations to that, but scale might not be as important as some other things. I do think one of the things that every investor is going to want to see is that you're going through a period of growth and that you have a real strategy about how you're going to continue to do that. So just kind of stepping back to that question, I think it's a good time to be in a process of evaluating partners when you're going through a period of growth. And the more, the better. It tends to kind of give you more leverage, if you will, in the negotiations. But in terms of just kind of getting started, I think really kind of looking at your business, if you don't already have the business really kind of laid out from kind of beginning to end, understanding what are the KPIs that really drive the business? Is it the number of new leads that are coming in or the number of conversions, et cetera? And really getting clear around those, getting clear around your financial picture, making sure that there's ad backs, a lot of entrepreneurial business, you might have a vehicle and some other things running through there, which again, here's where either internal, external CFO could kind of help you 
to really get that down. And then you know, start tracking it. If you're not already having at least a monthly kind of get together with the people in your organization that handle the books and evaluating what are the KPIs, what's our P&L, what's our balance sheet, what are those metrics? I think just bringing some focus to those things will create better results, interestingly enough. And so that would be kind of my advice is a good place to start. Excellent. Well, Jesse, I have enjoyed this. Thank you so much for being our guest on the show. If anyone was interested in this and they're going down the path and they said, I would like to talk to somebody, who should they reach out to? Where should they go first? Give them a name, number, a direction. Sure. So if you go to my website, I have a website and it's largely just been about putting information out there that has been useful to me. So we keep it pretty current, try to put information out that people that are entrepreneurs can use and do that. And that's at jessieg.com, which is J-E-S-S-E-G-E-E.com. And as soon as you come on the site, in anticipation of the podcast today, we put an offer up there that give us your number. We're not going to sell it. We just use it to call you and be happy to spend some time with you on the phone. And if nothing else, maybe we can impart some advice that's useful or maybe there is some type of opportunity to partner in the business. But again, go to the site and fill that out or just browse around and that would be a, a good next step. Great. Thank you so much. So for everybody out there listening, if you're just on the fence of it, want to explore just a little bit more, Jesse's made a valuable offer. Go to his website, look around, possibly even have a conversation with them. So just go to jessieg.com. That's J-E-S-S-E. GEE.com. Thank you so much for being our guest, Jesse, and I look forward to our next conversation. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. The Blue Collar Culture Podcast is sponsored by BlueCollarCulture.com. We help entrepreneurs create a healthy culture and build a self managing business. To learn more, go to BlueCollarCulture.com.